Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have one of my favorite types of guests on the show. We have Nima Sanani, who is a stand-up comedian. He's in the D.C. area, and by the time this is released, he'll have plenty of reels and footage for you to watch from another performance at the D.C. Improv, which, by the way, is a big freaking deal. And I can tell you that because I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy. Not only do I fly to shows just to see comedians, but uh, I go to more than 20 locally here a year. So I've watched Nima. It's a little creepy how much I think he's funny, and that'll probably creep into the interview. But without further delay, Nima, how's it going? It is going great. I appreciate the intro very much yeah and uh let's work in reverse i normally ask people how old they are and all that kind of stuff um i think it'll be pretty evident but i want you to explain why uh you call yourself the persian patch adams <laughs> and it's true guys uh, <laughs> yeah well I, I i think what you're referring to is the fact that i'm a first generation iranian american uh and so typically when you're iranian american the expectation growing up is you're supposed to be a doctor <laughs> or an engineer um and uh, I disciplined my parents by not doing any of that stuff and instead pursued entrepreneurship and other creative arts. And so my family just feels like I'm going through a, a sales business comedy phase. And at some point in time, I'll get a real job. And so uh, I suggested one of my comedy sets that I'd become the Persian Patch Adams, just going to med school in my 40s. Um, but alas, that has not happened. I'm still without a medical degree to my family's chagrin. Cool. And that was a great answer. Um, and so did you grow up, uh, I know you said you're first generation in America, but did you take trips to Iran or was that difficult or what's the story with that? Well, the story is a long one, so I'll keep it short. You're going to ask as many questions as you'd like. Uh, the answer is no, I've never been to Iran. Wow. Uh, my family uh, escaped um, after the Shah was ousted uh, and the Ayatollah Khomeini entered in power and due to a lot of tragedy and death and danger. My mother had to escape Iran while pregnant with me. Wow. Uh, and so I was born in Carmel, California, within weeks of getting to the United States after a harrowing journey out of Iran. So, um, no, I've never gone. Um, I'd be open to going back to the homeland, but as the only son of a um, revolutionary... <laughs> Never feel safe to go back. <laughs> so I'm going to stay in the land, the land of the free for now. Yeah, uh, this podcast tries to remain uh, stereotype free, but obviously, as an American who's of similar age, I was born in '81, and uh, you know, it's just in the collective consciousness: um, Iran equals not our friend and ally. Um, whether or not uh, that's true, I know that every Persian I've met has been incredibly awesome, and you know, and I've met a lot, uh, especially in my teaching career. So. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and, and Mike, if I can just kind of like, uh, kind of respond to that a little yeah, bit, I, please. I would say that, um, that people like you and obviously me and, uh, people like us, they, they understand that the, that the difference between the people of Iran and the government is a massive difference. Um, well, people who aren't familiar with the area, the region don't realize is the Iranian community in Iran is huge fans of, the United States, the <laughs> yeah. culture. Um, you know, I Iran has one of the most uh, like growing and successful um, movie industries, etc. It's the government that is well, not very uh, ideal. So the people are amazing. 
the Islamic regime less so. And and I'm curious, did your mom like have you ever had her watch like a movie like Argo, which is probably the most recent movie about the actual, you know, cataclysmic events that you're referring to, the revolution and what ensued? Uh so um the Argos itself, no. So when my mother, uh, she she passed away in 2010. Oh, I'm sorry. To hear. Um, oh, it's it's okay. It's it's uh, um and uh, but but we 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 certainly had lots of conversations through our my upbringing and uh, my my mother is a uh, was a very amazing and very interesting woman um, because she uh, never lost her love and her passion for the culture and simultaneously realized that the opportunities that America afforded herself and her family uh, were without measure. So she was actually really able to kind of navigate uh, both worlds and that never kind of relinquished or, or lost her love for the culture and the people and the language. Um, I don't speak Farsi. I was raised a uh, pretty American, um, but also was very, very American at the same time. Um, so even, even though we never watched Argo together, um, I, 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 I just kind of, feel like i i know how we, how she would react she would love the movie and then probably also be like well they took some creative liberties there that's not actually how it went down you know <laughs> yeah. so, so her, her critique would be it would be fact checking it wouldn't be about the uh, vibe it'd be about you know it would be, it'd be being too close to the uh, issue not that she was you know involved but uh, it would be like uh you know historically accuracy versus uh enjoyable film would yeah. be the only feedback and so um, this is like me uh, showing my ignorance, which I have no problem showing on this podcast. Um, but is are most people or is everyone in Iran assumed to practice Islam? And then in addition to that, did your mom and, and does your family and do you? So that's a great question. And, and, and if that's ignorant, then I'm going to match your ignorance, <laughs> um, you know, one for one and, and say that. I mean, yes, Iran is an overwhelmingly uh, Islamic uh, nation. And yet, I mean, there are, you know, Persian Jews, there's uh, people who practice other religions, but, uh, but you know, when you deal with uh, a regime and fundamentalism uh, that exists, I would say that, um, I mean, it, it's, it is largely uh, uh, Islamic. Um, and um, I, I think that just going back to my mother's pragmatism is, um, and I'll be very clear on this one, that uh, this is not my mom or any of my family feeling that Islam is a religion that is, you know, uh, bad in any sort of way. Um, but I do think that after my mother um, escaped um, a radicalized version of Islam and came to the United States, uh, she still had a lot of respect for it, but didn't really feel inclined to raise her children uh, Islam. I mean, <laughs> I went to a Jewish nursery school. Oh, wow. I went to mostly public school except for two years of Catholic school. Um, so I can do my Baruch ties. I can do the Lord's Prayer. I know next to nothing about Islam, which is kind of ironic in its own right. That is funny. Um, and actually, I, I guess I should backtrack a little bit. Um, I'm from the Bay Area, so I know where Carmel, California is. I know about Clint Eastwood and golf and all that. But um, is that where you were raised, or did you uh, grow up on the East Coast? Uh, mostly on the East Coast. I was, I was born in the Bay Area, Carmel, as I mentioned. Spent a few years in the East Bay, El Cerrito, Berkeley, oh, cool. uh, Albany area. Um, but most of my upbringing was in the Washington, D.C. metro area. That's awesome. I'll be in El Cerrito tomorrow night. So <laughs> that's funny. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, the Bay Area and uh, D.C. are like two of the most multicultural sites in America. 
So kind of, um, I know I'm still kind of asking about your mom, but it obviously affected you and, and does affect you. Um, so in Islam, uh, both pork and alcohol are taboo. And in America, both with the exception of Jews and Muslims reign like, you know, exceptionally popular. Was that difficult for her? Is that difficult? Is that like a weirdness thing? Or is it easy to adjust, do you think, for people from that culture? Uh, I, I, well, I can only speak for my family. I would say extremely easy okay. to to adapt. Um, and that's another thing. Even in Iran, yes, alcohol is not acceptable, yet everyone is basically drinking it. They're just, <laughs> that's you know, not what, 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 yeah, exactly. Whether they're smuggling it in or whether they're just doing kind of like bathtub gin, but uh, alcohol is pretty prevalent, even though it's not allowed. Um, and then my, my, you know, I was, I was raised um, with a, a, you know, family that enjoyed uh, late nights and lots of wine. And, um, and so I, I actually, uh, I, I didn't even know about these things until I got to an age where it made sense to know about them. I just knew my, my family is, you know, hanging out and, and spending hours laughing and talking and drinking and some of them like smoking. And it's, uh, so I, I no aspects of the, what was forbidden in Islam ever made its way into, our world. Um, I think that one of the things that's kind of funny is that my sister is three years older than me. She was born in Iran. Mm -hmm. She was um, part of the escape. She actually wrote uh, a what's now become a pretty well-known uh, book. It's called They Wanted or sorry, it's called They Said They Wanted Revolution. Oh, I know. Uh, Netta, yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah, so my, my sister wrote that book and it's kind of about our story. And one of the things that Netta and I talk about, it, even though she's only three years older, she definitely held on to more of the Persian culture than I had. I mean, she's been mm -hmm. multiple times to Iran. She oh, wow. speaks the language a little bit. I mean, she's not totally fluent, but she speaks it well. Meanwhile, um, in fact, uh, This American Life did an episode on my sister and me, and the theme of the episode was about, you know, my sister wanting to know every single thing about the family, about the, the, the death, about the revolution, and me basically wanting nothing to do with it. Um, so, uh, you know, the topic of this, of this, the name of this podcast being Coffin Talk is very <laughs> relevant because my sister and me, in our own way, we're trying to reconcile, uh, you know, the death of my father, which was part of the escape story, and then oh, wow. death of my mother. And just, uh, and we are very similar in some ways, but the way in which we approached that could not be more different. Here I am basically saying, uh, I am proud to be an Iranian American, yet I really emphasize the American part. I feel far more American than anything else. Um, my sister holds on way much more to the Iranian in the Iranian American. I basically bring it up and talk about it with people like you or in, incorporate it into the dark aspects of my comedy sets, because I actually think that one of the most cathartic and healing ways to deal with trauma is to laugh at it. Yeah. And then my sister is writing a very serious book about the thing. So could two people raised on the same roof, separated by only three years, who ended up with wildly different perspectives and ways to process a similar story, which is interesting in its own right. Yeah. I mean, if you take out all the death stuff, it sounds like a Fox sitcom from the 90s, but um, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. Also, I'm a book indexer, so I index just a ton of like random books. I've definitely seen your sister's book and like indexed her name and stuff. So that's crazy, the weird coincidences in my life. Um, and uh, I do want to hear a little bit about the escape and your father and that. Uh, before I ask that, a quick, quick question Do you have any other siblings besides your sister? Nope, just my sister and me. Okay. 
And then uh, my other quick question, which uh, then we'll elaborate on further, is uh, so what do you think happens when you die? Well, uh, man, that's a, that's a <laughs> very, very uh, important question. Um, okay, so he- here's my answer. Uh, if you had asked me five years ago about the idea of religion in general, I would say I'm a proud atheist. Like I was kind of the guy like five years ago that was probably so cynical, so like empirical that I was just like, the answer would be when you die, you just rot in the ground. That was five years ago. You know, two or three years ago, I'd probably say I moved a little bit more to agnostic. And then now I would say like my relationship status with religion and afterlife is it's complicated, you know? (laughs) Um, So I, I don't have a great answer, but here's what I realized. Um, Maybe it's, you know, the response to your question, I, uh, how old I was, you know, how old I am. I, I'm 40 years old. And um, there's a quote that a lot of old boomers apply to politics, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it's the same framework. It's like, if you're young and you're not a liberal, you have no hearts. As you get older, if you're not a conservative, you have no head. You know, it's kind of like a somewhat stupid thing that, you know, yeah. parents and grandparents say <laughs> is like a justification for their political beliefs, whatever. I'm pretty apolitical, so I don't really care. But I do think that same lens does apply to spirituality, applies to the idea of an afterlife, which is that I think it was easier to be, you know, cynical, purely empirical. I can only really talk about what I can see and hear and feel or go. After we die, nothing happens. You know, thanks for your time. You know, enjoy the dark void of nothing, right? Yeah. Um, but then as I got older, I, I, I think it's like I would like – to feel there's something else out there. And because I'd like to feel something out there, I've made a decision to view it that way because at the end of the life, not at the end of one's life, if I was to say, you know what, maybe there is something larger than just me, whether that's God, whether that's the universe, whatever it is. Um, and maybe if I act as if that's the case and then I die and nothing happens, well, kind of so what, you know, it still led me to leave a, to let, let me lead a more hopeful, optimistic life. So I can't say what actually, ha- I can't say what I think happens, but I would like to believe, and so I do, mm-hmm. that it's not just we die and rot in the ground. <laughs> whether, that it, whether that's we spend our eternity living out like the best ofs, you know, of our life, whether <laughs> it's an actual heaven, I have no effing idea, but, uh, I hope it's not just rotten the ground, but if it is, so be it. That's so cool. When I was younger, I would have thought it was a sign of unintelligence to have that sort of like waffly open answer. And especially the part where you said like, well, because I want to feel this way, I do. Now that I'm older, I'm like, no, that's the only wise way to go through life is like search for what can give you meaning and purpose and then just embrace it. Don't like further question it and don't also ignore it. Um, And so kind of on similar lines, I'm a little uh, curious about the timeline of events. So your mother passes away in 2010, and that at the time of this recording was about 13 years ago. But you said it was about five years ago that you started to shift from atheist to agnostic. Was there an event five years ago, or was it just kind of something that happened? Hey, everybody. Did you know that I write novels? Well, I do, and I have a new one out, and it's called Ardor, and it's about a world-famous psychic traveling around trying to stop other psychics from ruining everything on Earth. It's a fun read. A ton of people have already read it and loved it. So head over to MikeyOp.com, click the big link, and get your copy today. Thanks a lot. I started doing a lot more drugs. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, um, and by the way, that 
that that that is not even an uncommon answer. I mean, whether like 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 take a take Neil Brennan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, stand-up oh, yeah. comedian, uh, co co creator of Chappelle Show, great fan of comic in his own right. Um, he kind of jokes about how he did his career backwards, you know, became a <laughs> Emmy winning, like, you know, and then went to Sam Comedy. Most people do Sam Comedy to get into where he's at. Anyway. But like even he like talked about two or three years ago being a devout atheist, then he did ayahuasca, and now all of a sudden he's like, Well, I believe in something. Um, so I'm being a little bit uh, you know, cheeky, tongue in cheek by saying it, but no, I, I would say, you know, <laughs> uh some of these psychedelic journeys and, you know, psilocybin and these things it's like it's there's a lot of stuff that comes out of that that uh stuck with me you know yeah no i <laughs> so, uh there you I, go <laughs> i flew to ecuador and i did ayahuasca and it was life-changing it wasn't life-changing in this regard but it was life-changing for me on like what intuition is and how it works so it, it utterly changed my life and i've been much happier ever since and like all my friends hate me for doing it. And I don't actually talk about it a lot on purpose uh, because it annoys everyone. But with that said, I am glad that people like uh, the quarterback, Aaron Rodgers and stuff are kind of like, I don't want to prophesize it, but I do want people to be open-minded that, Hey, if, if, if you hear it and it sounds like exciting to you the same way skydiving does, uh, I would say there's a much less large risk to the latter. So um, I do kind of like openly encourage people to explore their own paths to it. Um, And, uh, with that said, um, what is like your peak spiritual experience so far? Uh, are you asking like a event itself or, or a substance or what? Oh no, not substance. I mean, it could be from a substance, but like the actual, like, like thought feeling, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, even if it's just like the rush from killing a crowd when you're doing comedy. <laughs> well, um, I think, uh, I, so surprisingly those two things are interrelated. Like, like even, um, the, the, the show I did in December, um, I, I had a bit about this and honestly it was like mostly true. I just, the, the bit, and you know, it's on the Instagram page. You may have even seen it. The part where I was just like, Oh no, I don't do drugs. I do psychedelic medicine <laughs> journeys, you know? And for those who don't know, that's what it's called to do drugs as an adult. Um, because, because it's funny because like, yes, um, th- there's a power in language and people don't want to, admit that they're doing drugs so they call it journeys and so basically what's the difference like if you and i get a bunch of mushrooms and go you know to a widespread panic concert and just you know get get wild then that's doing drugs but if you and i pay a shaman to like go and process our stuff with us and we pay like 10 times more and all of a sudden it's journeying you know it's uh and this stuff is like in the culture now. I mean, like there's that show on Hulu, like Nine Perfect Strangers. There's like Aaron Rodgers talking about his experience. Like this is like, I mean, right down the street from where I am, um, in uh, I'm in right now I'm in Northern Virginia, but at Johns Hopkins, like you know, psilocybin, MDMA, all these things are being studied with the same level of empirical scrutiny as any other drug is, and it's just out in the open now. So kind of bringing it back uh, full circle, um, I think that. Some of the comedy stuff involves some of these topics, but I will tell you that going through the process of doing some journeys, doing some of these substances, um, doing with people that I felt safe to be open with kind of gave me, I think, the belief and the courage to go out and do comedy. So you can make an argument that even though I've always enjoyed jokes and laughter and 
uh, comedy as a way of just processing the world, I didn't actually get the guts to get out there and do it until I, until I started doing these journeys. Um, and then coupled with that, um, there's been plenty of times where all I could think about is there's a lot of freaking serendipity in this world. There's a lot of coincidence in this world. And so I think that like, I, it's hard to really explain, but all these things that I would just determine to be complete and utter random stuff ends up not seeming as random. I, I, I'll give you a quick story that's not drug related or dream related, but it is like something that I think about because it's like butterfly effect. Um, so I'll tell you kind of the short story. Um, my mother uh, had ovarian cancer. Uh, I was her, um, and I was 25 or so when she, when her condition became terminal and she was given six months to live. I was working in medical device sales at the time. And as soon as I found out that she had six months to live, I like took a leave of absence from my job. I was working with a, a very, um, you know, uh, successful, well-known medical device company. And I just left that job, took a leave of absence, drove across the country from California because I was wor- working there at the time and became my mom's caregiver for six months. Um, during that period of time where I was basically her caregiver, watching her just waste away and eventually die, um, my sister was working in Washington, D.C. as a journalist. And so she'd come over in the evening to see my mom and see me and care for her as well. Um, one of her best friends is a woman named Sarah. One of my best friends is a guy named Quinn. Quinn was working in Washington, D.C. So he would come over in the evenings to see me. Sarah would come over to see Netta. During that six months, Quinn and Sarah fall in love. They eventually get married. They have a couple of kids. Fast forward like to 2015, Quinn and Sarah are having a barbecue. My sister is invited. Um, another gentleman named Dan is invited. Dan and Netta meet. They fall in love. They get married. They have a child named Rumi, which is my nephew. Huh. So all these little serendipity things, these butterfly effect things, basically means that if my mother hadn't gotten sick, hadn't passed away, I hadn't gone to see her, Quinn and Sarah probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to fall in love. If they don't fall in love, they don't get married, then Dan and Netta don't meet. Dan and Netta don't meet. There's no Rudy. So if I want to look at it this way, the last and probably best gift my mom gave to my sister and me was Rumi. You know, so this is an example of just like you can go crazy in a positive way if you start just to like think about this butterfly effect and this is the the, the series of coincidences that exist. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just get off my soapbox in a moment, but sometimes people are like, "Oh, I'm so grateful for what I have," um, and sometimes I'm thinking to myself like, "I'm grateful for the things I'm yet to even receive yet. I'm grateful for the things that didn't happen. I mean, which could include like." I'm grateful that some random guy decided not to drink and drive because maybe I'd be on the road and get killed by some drunk driver. So a lot of times when you, it can really kind of like make you go positively crazy and you go on this path of butterfly effect. But I think that that's a long, expansive answer to your question about, you know, very kind of profound experiences. I think that some of these things, these journeys, uh, both literally the psychedelic journeys, but also just like the journey of living as you get older, just, causes you to believe a little less in coincidences. Um, I'm not all, I'm not all the way on the path of everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, but I do have a perspective now where I'm just like, huh, that, that thing that happened, you know, did it happen to me? Did it happen for me? 
you know, um, and it's been healthy for me. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do this game a lot with my wife. Like, we both lived in the Bay Area at the same time in 2010 to 2012, and that was before I met my first wife, who I had my first son with, who then abducted my son and went to Thailand, which caused me to, like, briefly consider going dark and just, like, hating humanity, and then instead I reached up for the light, and now I'm with my wife, and I'm happy, and I host a show called Coffin Talk, and I, I volunteered in hospice. Like, you know, it's just, like, crazy how the zigzag effect. And I'm just pretty confident that when I'm dying, whether it's like hurtling into the sea in a plane with, you know, just screaming or whether it's on a deathbed peacefully with my family around me, I'm still pretty sure it'll all make sense. And I, and I do agree. It's uh, actually my, one of my favorite guests I've had on the show, Lynn Bunch always says, uh, it's only a coincidence if you believe in coincidences. So I think it's all a matter of perspective. I thought your answers, plural, were very wise. And uh, they, they provoked a lot of other questions for me, but I would, I would feel really crappy if I didn't uh, take this to my personal favorite hobby ever, which is stand-up comedy. And uh, I would like to preface this to my guests uh, – I'm sorry, to my audience. Um, I tried stand-up comedy once at an open mic. I was good enough to know that I don't want to do stand-up comedy, but I have such reverence for people who actually make it. And my definition of making it is not like going to open mics and then eventually becoming like – the lucky open micer who sometimes gets to introduce like the middle act before I, I think making it is when you're in your own right up on the stage and uh, whether your name's on the marquee or not, isn't <clears throat> here or there. So when I say like you've made it, I think it's important for you to understand that that means a lot to me. That's not an easy task. Um, and some people don't make it. So my first of uh, many questions, and maybe you'll answer some of the ones after that would be, what finally gave you the guts to cross that line between I think I'm funny, my friends think I'm funny, and I'm going to try to like earn money and demand respect from a stage with my humor? Well, well, first of all, thank you for saying all that. I really appreciate it. Um, one request you don't have to answer now, but uh, what you just shared with your story and your first wife and your son and the abduction to Thailand, like, I, I don't know if you have been interviewed yourself for your own show. But if you ever want to do a, a role reversal special, I would be honored to be the one interviewing you because I want to learn more about that. <laughs> um, you just threw a lot out, out there. That's really, really fascinating. So maybe I can think of that later on. Um, so as, um, as far as your question goes, uh, so for, for starters, um, you know, it's helpful that um, I, you know, I, I built a business. I, 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 I have a, you know, a quote unquote day job where I own a sales and management training company, uh, which doubles both as, you know, a way to make a living, something I'm very passionate about. I happen to be pretty good at. And, um, so even when I was getting, when I was new to comedy, um, I had been on a lot of stages, you know? So I think one of the biggest fears that most people have understandably. So is just the fear of public speaking. Um, and because, you know, for the better part of the last decade, I've been, you know, a public speaker in some respects, I, I think that big hurdle that many people who have never done anything have, I had more reps at, you know, yes, it's way different to facilitate a workshop or give a keynote on sales management leadership topics. That's a different content, but the, the, the biggest hurdle for most people is to overcome the fight, flight, freeze kind of instinctual reaction. And if you have enough reps in speaking, it's not that I don't get nervous. I still get nervous. Um, but I feel like I was a little bit further ahead from a comfort level because I had experience on stages. As far as your initial question, what kind of gave me the push, the courage to do so? Um, 
honestly, it's like kind of my version of therapy. I mean, really it is like, I actually, I actually wrote as like a stupid tagline for like an Instagram page. Um, like, uh, you know, like, like, uh, using comedy as the best mechanism since 1982. Like, it's really just like, it's, and this is a, kind of out, out there, but like, every time there's like a comedian and then you find out that comedian is extremely depressed and some people are like surprised. I'm like, how does that surprise you? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm sure there are comedians out there that are just funny and are, have no depression whatsoever. Yes. I know they exist. There's plenty out there, but I have to believe that the vast majority of comedians are struggling with their own darkness and the way in which they've they've adapted is to process that darkness through humor um i think that that is one of the big attractions to me you know i I am someone that has struggled with depression for a long time I'm, i'm doing great but to me like the catharsis of taking something that's like a dark topic or absurd topic and just going out and just sharing it and just being that raw and vulnerable is therapy to me a lot of performance for me in my history, and including teaching even, is this weird moment, and Joe Rogan talks about this a lot when he interviews comedians. There's like this moment where you've hypnotized the crowd, and it's undeniable. It's both undeniable as an audience member and as a person on stage. And then you just know, you're like, well, now I can just, I mean, I could tell jokes that were funny when I was four, and this crowd's going to laugh at them. I'm curious, like, do you think as you get better at comedy, you get better at, like, achieving that? Or do you think it's actually really this, like, beautiful unique spiritual moment of crowd meets uh personality oh that's a great question so even though this has nothing with drugs i'm gonna make a drug example like there is no drug on the planet earth other than maybe like being deeply in love whether that's with like you know a wife or husband or someone's partner or a love for a child outside of maybe that there is no drug that is more intoxicating (laughs) than the feeling of being on a stage and just owning it. Like it is like uh, so many of, I mean, like, like that, that's like that chasing that dragon, you know, some people unfortunately have a heroin addiction. They're chasing that dragon. They're chasing that high that they achieved. Um, I got to tell you, like, there's no high, there's no drug that's more just compelling and motivating and intoxicating as that feeling at that flow state. And And I'm sure that's true of like musicians as well that they just enter that flow state. But for me and for other people, it is comedy. Like that feeling, the roar of the crowd, even like the groan of the crowd that like playing ups and downs with like different like vibes is such a powerful feeling. Um, and uh, I'm going to answer your question in a different way, which is that, um, uh, so, I, but, 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 so the last set I, I did, I was talking to my, uh, my buddy, uh, Brad, who's not a comedian, but as I mentioned, I've been very fortunate to be around very funny people growing up. And he's one of the funniest that I know. And I asked him for feedback after the set. He's like, the set was awesome. Loved it. And he asked me, he's like, why did you lead with a lot of the dark stuff? Cause I actually made jokes about my mom's death. I made jokes about my father's death. Um, they were both vulnerable and lighthearted and just raw. I like basically made that part of the jokes. And he asked me, he's like, He's like, I feel like that would have, and it went well. It definitely like got some big responses. But Brad was like, I'm curious why you made the decision to do that in the first third and not the final third. And I understood this question because this question was like, 
if you give the audience more time to fall in like with you or fall in love with you, you, you earn the right to go darker, you know? Um, but my logic was actually, well, if it lands early on, that's a bonus. But if it doesn't land, I have some, you know, some can't miss stuff afterwards. So I can earn back the crowd. Ah, um, yeah. uh, but there's no, but that's the thing. Like there's no right or wrong. Um, in, in retrospect, it, it, um, and I, and I have not yet, and this is probably a mistake to be honest, but like, I, I'm yet to do like the same set again, which is probably a mistake. I think a lot of people will like redo it, punch it up and so on. But like when I move past a, a set, like I just go and do new stuff. It's just, it's just exciting for me to go and do new stuff. I'll, I'll bring stuff back into play sometimes. A lot of times I do a brand new thing, but if, and when I were to do that again, I think Brad's right. I probably could have done it at the end and it may have hit even bigger, but so this is kind of answering your question mm -hmm. that like, I can't speak to a level of expertise I haven't attained yet, but I can maybe say that maybe with experience, you trust your gut and your instincts more. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, here's how I think the set needs to put together. Here's where I think this joke goes. Um, uh, Louis CK talked about this on his, um, he did, one of the best podcast series I've heard in a long time was from uh, Theo Vaughn. Um, oh, cool. uh, yeah, like he, he interviewed Louis C.K. This is back in December. And Louis talked about how um, every time he tries out a joke initially and the crowd's like, no. The crowd's like, don't do that. You can't say that. L Louis's like, I need to make this work. And it always becomes his best bits. So what's interesting about that is like his level of prowess, expertise, genius is almost without parallel, but he basically, when someone doesn't respond to something in a crowd, he actually uses it as more fuel to make it better, to, to polish it up. And what was funny is he also said that the jokes that come too easily, the ones he thinks about early on and they work, he oftentimes doesn't use them anymore. He's like, yeah, that was too easy. Um, so I think kind of longer response to your question, um, I don't, I, I think some of it is over time, you just start to trust your gut more mm -hmm. and you follow that instinct. And then the nice thing about it is if you have enough, have enough success that you have more belief in your instincts. Um, I'll tell you a point blank vulnerability um, for, for me. I mean, uh, I, I, I never really fully get past the self-talk where it's like, well, I think this is really funny, <laughs> but will the, but will the crowd think it's funny? Um, and who knows, maybe two, three, five, ten years from now, we'll be talking and I'll say, yeah, I've overcome that because I need to trust my guts. Yeah, no, that's that's a great answer. And it's funny because I thought about Louis C.K. a lot over the years. Um, he was my first favorite comic that I would see live, like, pretty regularly. And then, you know, allegations slash an apology were brought against him. And he won a Grammy after that. And I think that has a lot to do with the parable of, like, what you just talked about, which is he probably was like, okay, you're going to make this even harder on me? Well, then I'll just have to be extra funny. Like, I'll have to be so damn funny that people will be undeniably on my side for, like, the Grammy nomination. Because that, that blew me away. I mean, I don't want to get into the particulars of cancel culture. I have strong opinions about all of it. But um, no matter what, I know that he's one of the very few examples of someone who apologized, went away for a while and then came back, but with like a ferocity that is like incredible to watch. I actually have a theory on that. Sure. Um, please. And it's uh, obviously I can't be proved. I'm probably wrong, but it makes sense <laughs> to me. Um, I actually think that the reason why some people 
get canceled and they never return versus other people who either never get canceled or get minorly canceled and then come back has more to do with how much contrast there is between what they did or said and how they're perceived. So I'll give you some examples. Okay, cool. Like yeah. Louis, like Louis C.K., right? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not condoning what he did. I'm just saying that, like, this is the same guy who basically made his mark in, you know, having jokes like, uh, you know, suck a bag of dicks, you know? <laughs> like, he's, he, he's like, he's he, he already was a comedian that pretty much said whatever he wanted. He went where people wouldn't go. So, like, when the thing happened, which, again, not condoning it, I actually think that the path back, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I'm sure it was incredibly difficult uh, for him to do, but, like, there wasn't a, it's like, okay, oh, well, shocking. Louis C.K., a guy we've heard say some of the most <laughs> vulgar things in a very clever way, did something vulgar. Shocking, yeah. right? So, like, I think the path back for him made sense. And then you think about, like, um, uh, I can't remember what the guy's name from the Today Show uh, was it Matt Lauer? Yeah, Matt anyway, Lauer. That's um, right. yeah. His his persona and brand was so wholesome that like we'll probably never hear or see him again. Yeah, because he went from being like completely pure, just like on a pedestal, and then did something you know really uh, bad. But the the contrast between how he's perceived in like the pop culture versus what he did was way too out of whack. Um, so I've been playing around this idea for a long time where you're, I mean, and obviously there's like, not, not a, not a political guy, but like, Mm -hmm. I mean, Donald Trump will never really be canceled because like the the guy who says anything he wants, whenever he wants, said something crazy or this thing crazy. Yeah. That, that seems, that seems about right. Now keep in mind, I'm not saying that everyone loved that guy. Clearly you don't, but like, why do you think he never loses any? Of his followers because yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's on it's it's on brand for him. So I don't know why I've been fascinated by that theory, but I think that sometimes the theory around who gets canceled forever versus versus who gets somewhat canceled obviously has to do with the severity of the act. Yeah, but in addition to the severity of the act, it also has to do with the fact that like, well, was that action on brand for him or not or her or and if not, how far out of whack was it? Yeah, and if it's not too far out of whack, you're like, okay, well. Yeah, you should have done that. It's really disgusting. It's not okay. But, you know, yeah. maybe we'll get him back. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know if that's relevant to anything. But no, anyway. no, that was fascinating. And I actually could talk about this like all day and all night, especially the Trump thing, because I think the only thing that's weirder to me than a 2023 diehard Trump fan is a 2023 person who still doesn't understand why people are fans of Donald Trump. That's actually funnier to me that in like the last eight years, you really couldn't see like what his appeal is and why he took down Hillary Clinton in one of the most famous elections ever. Like that disconnect from how reality works versus how ideology works is it's not hilarious to me, but it's also hilarious. Um, so yeah. And man, this, this podcast has been so fun for me because the first half was a traditional coffin talk podcast. And then it's just been like nerding the F out on comedy. And I could not, have more fun doing it with someone than I've just had with you. Um, we're running up on time, so I'm going to go ahead and throw out the last question, which is, what do you want to tell our audience? And before uh, you do that, I would like to mention that in the notes, you'll have plenty of links to find Nima. But uh, again, it's Nima Semnani, and uh, he does play uh, comedy in DC regularly. So please look him up. Please follow him, and please give him attention. Thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate it. So the question is what 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 what, uh, what I want to say to the audience in my yeah. closing remarks. Yep. Oh man. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, <laughs> uh, I think what I would, what I would say is um, that uh, there's a lot of light through the darkness. Um, I, I, I think that um, uh, there's not an invitation for people to go offend everyone they can, but I, I, I do think that um, I feel the world would be a much better place if we just laughed more. Um, you know, there's a quote I heard not too long ago, which said, uh, people in societies have as many problems as they can afford. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you go back 25 years, uh, 30 years maybe, when Chris Rock, um, you know, was first coming to become a household name from his HBO specials. And he had that bit where he said, um, we're so rich in this country, we got lactose intolerance. <laughs> you think there's a starving kid in Africa with a lactose intolerance? And, like, it's a funny joke, and it's also really true. Um, there's some really, 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 really tragic things that happen in this world on a daily basis. Um, and uh, there's also some beautiful things that happen. And so I think my one thing I can throw out there is uh, I would like to live in a world that doesn't go looking for things to be offended by or go looking for things to be upset by because um, there are plenty of things that are worthy of being upset by. And then there's also just jokes, you know, uh, some of the people who I know who tell some of the riskiest comedy, uh, jokes out there are the kind of most thoughtful, loving, sweet people. It's like their version of, of therapy. It's not a excuse for people to go out there and say terrible things, but it really is just more of like, a, I just think that if we could just laugh more as a world, many other things might be become better. That's all I got. Oh, that was the perfect answer. And I agree completely. So as my mother always says, uh, from your lips to God's ears, um, everyone, thank you again for coming around and listening to Coffin Talk. This has been another insanely fun episode for me to record. You, of course, have been hearing the wit and wisdom of Nima Semnani. And like I said, you can find him all over the internet and he's hilarious. And if you're in the D.C. area, you're extra lucky because you get to see him perform. He has an open invitation to come to Phoenix and play here and I will bring as many people as I can. And so hopefully I'll work that out. In the meantime, if you want to support this show, the only and best way to do that is to head over to MikeyUp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up for free for the weekly letter that also announces the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Once again, my name is Mike Oppenheim. You have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon.